0: Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris' troisième arrondissement. My guest today is Sally Bedell-Smith, author of uh, All His Glory, The Life of Bill Paley, which I read before I knew who you were. A Reflected Glory, Pamela Harriman, and there's a woman who knew something about power and where it resided. Uh, Biographies of... uh, Princess Diana, Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth II, and most recently, George VI and Elizabeth. So it might be a fair thing to say that no woman in America or no person in America knows more about the royal family than Sally Bedell Smith.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say. I guess maybe I qualify because I think, I've done
0: I, I think research you
1: do. into four important members of the royal family. Five, actually, because this is a dual biography. Yeah, it's,
0: it's wonderful, by the way. And, you know, Thank since you. Uh, most of my readers and listeners are Americans like myself, not all from Brooklyn, uh, in mm-hmm. my case, uh, <laughs> people like my father never really understood what it is that the British, th- this affection, if you will, that they have for the royal family. Uh, do you have a, a, a suggestion as to what that's all about? How can we understand these crazy people?
1: Well, I don't think they're crazy. Um, I think it's a wonderful institution. It's an integral part of uh, British life, British culture, um, the British Constitution. Um, The monarchs for some while now haven't ruled, they have reigned um, and they, they take the advice of the government. But at the same time, they serve as a really binding force. They serve as a force for continuity. And there is a wonderful phrase, and forgive me for forgetting who exactly came up with it, but I think it's very apt. It is that the British monarch is the light above politics. Prime ministers come and go, but the monarch remains and and has a unique bond with the people, not only in Great Britain, but in the Commonwealth all around the world. And this is highly unusual and they have made it work because they understand, uh, the best of them, understand that they are there, um, really, with the consent of, of the people. And they are pres- presumably- yes, like, our, ha- like
0: our president.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Not exactly. I think it shows that the, the system of um, dynastic inheritance actually works pretty well over there, or at least it has. To my point, I'm, I'm
0: thinking, you know, the the minor, not the minor who was on strike uh, when when uh, Churchill was had authority, but what what does the common man uh, get out of this? Is there some sense, I don't know, is it reflected glory? Is there some way that he sees himself a little better as a result of all this pomp and circumstance?
1: I think, I mean, I think certainly since the reign of Queen Victoria, um, there's been a real emphasis on what one academic term the welfare monarchy I think you know the effort to show that the monarch has philanthropic interests has charitable interests wants to contribute to the betterment of mm-hmm. British society and in more recent decades um, have have a closer bond with the people at the same time you know can serve, it's a sort of balancing act where they have to be they have to have a sort of magic and majesty at the same time they need to be able to reflect what the culture is and 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 move along with it um you know there was no better example of how closely bound together the british monarch and his consort um had the bond that they had with the people during World War II um, when George VI and, and, and Queen Elizabeth were king and queen during his 15 years as as king. And six of those years, they'd been married for 28 years, but six of those years were during one of the most horrific periods in, in, in the history of the world, uh, World War II. And what they did, how they conducted themselves, how often they went out with not, you know, with a lot of risk to themselves to survey the damage, particularly, you know, the parts of London that were hardest hit were the were the were the poorest neighborhoods in the East End and South of the Thames. And those two went back over and over again. Often, during air raids, they would have to flee to the basement of a police station and sort of astonish the people in there. They were, you know, they were making a lot of spontaneous appearances that just sort of don't happen now. But even before uh, he became king and she became queen, he he really, you know, we're we've now got, the recent memory of Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, which sort of cast that role as second in line um, in a somewhat derogatory way. Um, Prince Albert uh, the, and the, the Duke of York was the Spare. Nobody used that word, but he made, a, you know, he found meaning in that role. And, and what he chose to do was to be an advocate for working men and get them together with business owners and get the business owners to provide services and you know, to improve pensions and give them canteens and better healthcare. And so not only did he go out and sort of, you know, like the then Prince of Wales, future Edward VIII, he would sort of swan through the depressed areas of Wales and go away. Um, the Duke of York, who everybody knew as Bertie, actually was doing something and he didn't know he was going to be king one day but he had a very democratic streak and she she did too because even though she grew up in an aristocratic scottish family she was at least in terms of the royal family she was a commoner i mean when she was a little girl in scotland she would play with the village kids and you know she she understood real people and during world war 1 they turned their castle into a convalescent home. And she was helping to take care of wounded soldiers from all walks of life. And they felt, they wrote and felt that she treated them with with real dignity and compassion. So there was something embedded in those two that was very special and, and gave them links to ordinary people. And when the war came along in world war ii they they really helped to lift morale and um that was no inconsequential thing
0: well uh you know i would say that you know in reading your book i think the fundamental decency of both of them uh comes Absolutely. through uh you know uh, in, in parallel with the indecent behavior of edward the eighth and you you subtitle or whatever it's a, above the title actually the marriage that saved the monarchy i would go one further and almost say the marriage that saved the democracies because had edward continued to reside on the on the throne with his behavior and his aunt and his pro-nazi sympathies it would have made it a hell of a lot more difficult for mr churchill to to deal with the uh, Herr hitler as he was known yeah,
1: sense. oh, I absolutely think so, because he he showed his uh, pro-Nazi sentiments, uh, sentiments um, even earlier when he was Prince of Wales and he was making speeches, pra- praising Germany. His father, George, the, George V, um, rebuked him for doing that. And then when he became king, he was very cozy with the um, with the German ambassador and he was sort of signaling to him. Yeah. Well, Ribbentrop and then there was another in Von Hesch um, who who said that he thought that, you know, if as king, he would be very sympathetic to Nazi Germany. And of course, after the abdication, when he became the Duke of Windsor in the autumn of 1937, we're talking two years before the war actually began, uh, the two of them spent two weeks in Germany meeting with Hitler and the high command. And he was giving the Nazi salute and they were calling him Herr Edward and he was hailing Herr Hitler. And um, so you can only imagine what he would have been like had he still been king. One of the great revelations of my research is what a thoroughly irresponsible and dangerous king he was. I mean, he was, he was inattentive to even the most basic duties um, he would leave sen- sen- um, sensitive papers around um, at his his little castle in Windsor, um, Fort Belvedere, and be, he'd send them back to the government. And there'd be ring- you know w- rings from their cocktail glasses, and so they you know he was he was very careless with documents. He kept people waiting. He abandoned protocol. Um, the people who were working close to him were appalled by his behavior, and he had he had behaved that way before he was king, but when he actually was king, it became it became so serious that the foreign office withheld sensitive documents from him.
0: Well, you talk about a Tommy Lucell, I guess, who was his. Uh, almost an aide-de-camp, uh, certainly yeah. Stanley Baldwin. I mean, the the handwriting was on the wall that this guy was was not uh, destined to, to be uh, do anything favorable for uh, for, yeah. for England. And uh, how much of that pressure were they able to exert on him uh, to force the abdication?
1: Well, I don't think they really needed to exert any pressure. What they needed, what they did, what Stanley Baldwin did, which I thought was very appropriate, was to alert him. To the consequences of his insistence on marrying a woman who was, you know, by the, you know, she was, she was twice divorced, and um, and and that went against all the uh, rules, not only of the Church of England but the government, and the government simply would not accept someone who was that inappropriate. So it it didn't take. Much pressure from the the uh, government, I mean Stanley Baldwin was i mean even though he knew what a bad king he was, the idea of an of abdication was such anathema to all of them, um breaking the cord i mean the last time that had happened was when Charles I was executed, mm-hmm. and um it was you know a different form, but it was still that. At continuity over the years was broken by an abdication and they didn't want it to happen. I'm not sure what they really had in mind for him to make him into a better king because he was a, he was a, so it was, it was fortunate that Wallace Simpson came along and, um and, and. Forced the issue in a way. The, the savior
0: of the free world, Wallace Simpson.
1: I mean, there. Are, I cannot tell you how many English people have said there really should be a statue of Wallace <laughs> Simpson somewhere in in London because her arrival on the scene gave him a reason. He, you know, he said enough times before he was king that he really didn't think he had the right stuff. He didn't think it was a suitable. Uh, role for him. And he said to one person, he said, I think my brother Bertie would be much better at this. And uh, many years later, then, you know, Queen Elizabeth, by then the Queen Mother said that when George V was very sick in 1929, and he was um, convalescing along the seashore, they came to visit him. And he said, you know, I, I I don't think they called him David. I don't think David is ever going to be king. And she recalled that conversation two times over the years, and she said well, we didn't know what he was talking about. Of course, he was going to be king because he was next in line. But George V knew, and he knew to the extent that he looked not only at at Bertie, at Prince Albert, the Duke of York, but he saw a, when. Little Lilibet, the future Queen Elizabeth II, when she was very young, he saw, he knew that she was in all likelihood going to be queen someday. And it was fascinating in researching this book to see the kind of training they gave her from an early age, even if it was just taking her out in public when she was three and four years old and exposing her to crowds and having her shake hands with Disabled people, or whatever. Um, And then, of course, when she got older, she had a very specific education in constitutional theory and history that was tailored to someone who was one day going to be a monarch. Uh,
0: You mentioned research, and uh, apparently, you had access to a lot of material that was not previously available. Talk about that. Yes. And and your process of, your general process of researching for your books.
1: Well, in all my prior books, I've relied primarily on interviews with people because they've mostly been about subjects who were still with us. Not the case with the Kennedys, but um, or with Diana. But in both cases, there were a lot of people around who knew them and could talk about them. I had done re- archival research before, but I know I knew that in this instance. um, Although there were a few oldies I could talk to, there weren't very many, and their memories were pretty unreliable. So I knew that to make to to to, to capture the authentic, authenticity and intimacy of this couple, and to really learn who they were and how they how they made their way through life, um, I, I had to get into the Royal Archives, which are lodged at the top of the Round Tower of Windsor Castle. And I was fortunate that I had two people who I had come to know over the years, who admired my work, who liked my books on the Queen and, and Prince Charles, then Prince Charles in particular, and agreed to help me because the only way I could see these papers was to get the permission of Queen Elizabeth II. And it took about five or six months to work through the process, which is... Uh, pretty opaque. But they both, in slightly different ways, um, pleaded my case to her. And it was, I mean, I felt incredibly honored. And also, you know, it was a real matter of trust, because she was very sensitive about how her mother and father were portrayed. So, you know, late in the spring of 2018, uh, she granted me permission to read the paper, the diaries and letters of her mother and father and other members of the family, Queen Mary, King George V, and a lot of letters uh, for, with friends. And um, and so in the autumn of 2018, I began to make my trek every day for three months to the archives of Windsor Castle. And the very act of doing that sort of underlined the gravity of, of what I was undertaking. I had to walk up from the train station and walk up the hill through the King Ed, Henry VIII um, gate and up and yet another hill and go into an unmarked door and then a staircase of a called exercise stairs, sally right <laughs> i was i was so aerobically fit the time i was finished well, how much,
0: uh, i mean I'm, I'm i'm assuming obviously you would have written the book if if she held some oversight on what you wrote but how was she accessible to you while you were doing the research
1: no she never she never gave interviews she never gave well, on the record interviews i if her neck, i don't know who her official biographer will be But I have heard that someone has done some interviews with her over the years, but by and large, she never gave any interviews um, ever, and um, nor did her mother, except in a very informal way with some of her friends. Um, So, you know, she knew that I was doing the book. I, at one point, wrote her a letter and thanked her and thanked her private secretary for all the help they had given me and expressed my gratitude. And I'm very glad I did that in the spring of 2019. And I got a wonderful letter back in that typical, you know, formal language saying we have laid your letter before the Queen and she sends her very best wishes. So uh, that made me, I was glad I was able to do that, to, to tell her how grateful I was for that privilege.
0: I want to go back a little bit to the beginning and uh, Georges Sank, who uh, apart from being named for having a hotel name for him in my town (laughs) and a street, (laughs) talk about him and particularly his relationship with the two boys, because uh, he he didn't see this track in Bertie early on.
1: Uh, No, he didn't. He didn't. I mean, poor Bertie was, he was uh, sort of frail uh, and the you know, he, he developed a stammer um, between his seventh and eighth year. And it did impede his ability to achieve in school. It also had an impact on his family life. His father was known for what they called chaff. He was always kidding people. And there was a lot of banter in the family. And And Ernie just couldn't keep up with it. So he remained silent a lot of the time. And that Made other people think he was stupid, which he wasn't. What it did do on the on the on the you know the the silver lining of that was that he became very observant and a very good listener. And both of those qualities would help him later on when he became king. but he he um you know he was he was, he was second. and his it was interesting during World War I, he served in the Royal Navy but he was afflicted with a, uh, for for a long time, undiagnosed gastric illness that kept him hospitalized, bedridden uh, for long periods of time. And during some of that time, he spent with his father who had also, who had been injured terribly, excuse me, in 1915 on on a trip to the front to visit troops in the front. His horse had fallen on him. And, and so it gave Bertie an opportunity to see his father, who was convalescing from an injury, but to see him as a monarch working during wartime. And over, over they, you know, he, he was very tough on all of his children, except all of his sons. He was pretty doting on his one daughter. Um, but Edward the eldest, was a sort of shining star, and Bertie was always sort of in the background. But his father came to respect him for his integrity and his loyalty and his steadfastness and um, you know all the good qualities that came out later on, and people recognized when he became king. Um, but he was a tough father. Um, you know when Bertie started stuttering, his father would yell at him and just say, "Get it out! Get it out!" Which, of course, is the worst thing you can say to somebody with a stutter. And one of the hard, the two hardest words for him were "king" and "queen." And you know, such sort of sort of you know touching irony. And um, and so he had to cope with that. He he, he had a Bertie had a, a, a he had a big temper. And I think a lot of it was associated with his inability to speak properly. Um, he was very frustrated, and um, and and he did suffer from a lot of illnesses, which were finally diagnosed as a duodenal ulcer, which he had you know, surgically removed or not necessarily on.
0: inflicted by Georges V or maybe complicit um, unintentionally.
1: Well, I don't know. I think it had more to do with a with a sadistic nanny who used to. Withhold food from him when he was a little boy, yeah. um, but he but he did he, he sort of grew out of that. But he was never terribly physically strong. He turned out to be, you know, quite a good athlete. He was a good tennis player. He, when he was younger, he ran, learned to run cross country. But he, you know, he put up with a lot of bullying when he first went. he was, you know, obviously as a second son, they made him go into the navy. He got terribly seasick and um it was it was he went through the two royal naval colleges and did very poorly. but he he persevered. And I think his father respected him for that
0: well let's let's talk a little about Elizabeth, who's a, has oh, yeah. a very important role in all of this. The yes. uh, you know he it seemed to me that she maybe someone like uh, Diane, even at the beginning, Didn't want the responsibility of being a queen. Wanted to have a somewhat normal life, if one can, you know, live in that in that rarefied world. And and she knew what she would be in in for. And yet, when when push came to shove, after three attempts to uh, get her to say yes, and she did, she turned out to be, uh, you know, one one solid good good woman. Uh, Oh, she was a great uh, a great wife to him. And I don't know to what degree uh, you and the, and the producers of uh, The King's Speech read some some of the same material, but I thought Helena Bonham Carter captured what I'm reading in your book about yes. her. There was yes, this, this loyalty, this, this wit, this sense of humor, uh, this rock-solid support uh, of he as a person and ultimately as a king. So let's talk a little bit about her and how that evolved, how that developed.
1: Yeah, well, I think someone much once described her as a marshmallow made on a welding machine. And she did have, you know, she was a She had a big, you know, big personality. She, um, she had, you know, she was very beguiling. She wasn't beautiful, but I think she was very animated and very charismatic. She grew up in a family of nine children and it, it, they had beautiful places where they lived at Glom's castle. Her father was the 14th Earl of Strathmore, a very old Scottish title. Uh, Glom's castle was apparently where Shakespeare set Macbeth. Um, they had another the Scottish estate. play. <laughs> yeah. The Scottish play. Um, they had another beautiful estate in Hartfordshire in, in, uh, in England. And, um, and a and a house in you know in Mayfair in London. And they lived the very aristocratic life of traveling from one house to another and doing a lot of shooting, and as I said, following the birds up to Scotland and then down to Hertfordshire and then back to London for the season. And it was a it was an unusually warm and embracing family of nine, but they had a lot of tragedy. Before Elizabeth was born in 1900, there was an older sister who died at age, um, I believe at age 11 at, uh, of diphtheria, only two weeks after um, her, the next child, um, Michael, was born. And um, uh, Elizabeth's mother, Cecilia Strathmore, was an unusually maternal figure. In the aristocracy, a lot of the mothers didn't have much to do with their children, but she did. She educated them. She uh, taught young Elizabeth Bible stories. She encouraged her to read. She didn't have a very good formal education, but Elizabeth was an avid and wide ranging reader. And she wrote beautiful letters, very funny. Uh, She loved P.G. Woodhouse, who I happen to think is a great uh, writer and stylist but many others and uh, she once somebody once said that when she was little you know she read on the floor and her elbows got rubbed raw because she was uh, lying on the floor and reading books all the time and um so she brought a kind of sparkle to um to 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 Bertie's life and you know he fell in love with her first when he saw her dancing in a military ball um, in July of 1920, and little did he know that she was actually in love with his relatively new uh, Aquari, who was a, a sort of aide de camp to him, and she'd been seeing him for about a year. He was a good friend of her brothers, and um, but um, it, I guess it did dawn on her, Bertie that he wasn't. This other fellow was in the picture, but. Um, Only a couple of months after they first met, Bertie invited himself to Glom's Castle for for a weekend. And at that point, he fell in love with their family, too. Um, And then he just began this pursuit. And it went on for 30 months. He, He proposed to her in February of 1921, and then again in March of 1922. And She turned him down both times and wrote very anguished letters. And they, you know, she never she never closed the door. You know, she was always very, you know, very fond of him and and praising him. And um, I think the 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 tide started to turn in the autumn of 1922. And by by then, by the way, Queen Mary, although it's never been proved, but it seems pretty clear she got James Stewart out of the way by having a friend of hers um, offer him a very lucrative job in North in America. And he was a second son of, of, of a peer. And so he had to go somewhere and make some money, which he did. And, uh, and now and then it was open open field for, for Bertie. And and one of the most fascinating things in the research was the opportunity to read Elizabeth's diary, which she started on January 1st, 1923. And two days later, um, Bertie proposed to her for the third time. And what unfolded in the following 11 days over this 12-day period was how you know her indecision and her you know all these things she was doing in the run-up to her final acceptance, a few minutes before midnight on the fourteenth of January. Um, and why was she so reluctant? Which you sort of alluded to in your question. I th- best she was she was always very vague about it. Um, but uh, Bertie himself told Princess Margaret that she almost married James Stewart. Um, he was well aware that she had been in love with him and he had been in love with her. Um, And so, uh, you know, she was reluctant, but I think the root of her reluctance was giving up that life. Um, She'd been proposed to by quite a few men and um, aristocratic men, and she just had this wonderful family and, um, and she knew from being close enough to the royal family that she would be going into a life of duty and since she never dreamed that she would be queen it was going to be a a life of you know tree planting and ribbon cutting and statue unveiling and you know having a very nice life but it would be much more limited than what she was accustomed a to. lot of responsibility an enormous a lot uh, of responsibility responsibility yeah. Yeah. and
0: I am I'm, I'm looking at you know thinking of uh, George's uh, legacy and certainly what you talk about in terms of uh, you know in not having any political power but the the visual image he presented to people during the war was so powerful but I, yeah. I would suggest that his legacy was Elizabeth who is uh, Elizabeth yes. II who was uh, he was training almost from the beginning and I'm wondering uh, given his poor health and the fact that he smoked incessantly and ultimately mm. died from lung cancer did he have some uh, pre knowledge or premonition about an early death, and felt that it was important to give her as much training as possible early on?
1: I don't know if he had a premonition of early death because you know to read the, what was what he was writing in the days before he died, he was sort of convinced that he was fine and that he was that he was going to go. They were planning a trip to South Africa. Um, I mean, Churchill wrote that very, very dramatic speech saying he walked with death. And I I don't think he did. I, you know, I mean, Princess Margaret wrote a letter to a friend and she said he's fully recovered. We're all so happy. Um, You know, when they took one of his lungs out, they took his left lung out, you know, in September of 1951 and the doctors took a look at his right lung and it was full of cancer and they knew he wasn't gonna live very long. But he started training her. He knew that at one point or another, Elizabeth would be queen. And so he taught her by example, and he also taught her through instruction. And certainly they were unbelievable role models of a a king and, and consort. And they, in their own ways, helped to shape her and Churchill certainly recognized that, and he said that even in his in a condolence letter that he wrote to uh, then the Queen Mother, that you have, you know, you have the terrible sadness of of losing the King, but just look at the look at the shining example you have, who will go on to reign um, in the years ahead. Nobody ever imagining that she would break all the records and reign for 70 years. I mean, and you talk about duty there. She was two days before her death saying farewell to one prime minister and greeting another. And then she was gone. Uh, Quite extraordinary. I mean, they really imbued her with duty and humble, humble duty.
0: People need to read your book, which we don't have enough time to do an entire uh, discussion on Elizabeth. But what would you say uh, her legacy is when people sit back, uh, let's say, 20 years from now uh, or 50 years from now? How are they going to remember her? Not not just people that knew her in England, but the, the world in general. What's the perception?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, they'll remember that she's the longest reigning and probably will, unless we figure out ways of extending our lives far longer. Uh, the, the Lou, Lou Gehrig she, of Queens, yeah, that she was the longest reigning, and and but that she reigned in such a wise way that she that she sort of was the glue that held um that she held the nation together in pretty turbulent times um that she conducted herself impeccably as a constitutional monarch that she was wise enough to know how to advance the monarchy incrementally and keep it a, keep pace with the changes that were going on in britain uh, i remember one of her private secretaries described to me the marmite theory of monarchy which you know you know marmite um you had love it or hate it but it comes in a bottle that's yellow and green and and um and and red and if you look at a marmite bottle today you say oh well that's the way marmites always look but then you look at a marmite bottle from 100 years ago and it looked quite different and they've tweaked it along the way so it looks different from what it did 100 years ago and i think you know and that was his way his analogy of saying that the queen has you know, knew she had a very, you know, almost a sixth sense of not getting too far ahead of everybody, but recognizing the changes. Um, she presided over some terrible uh, uh, tragedies in her family and, um, you know, managed to navigate all that uh, very well. And um, now we have a king who we remember when, when Queen Victoria died in 1901, her playboy son, the future uh, King Edward VII, um, well, who liked coming 50... to
0: Paris, by the way.
1: Yes, he. He was did. well known in Paris. <laughs> he was well known in Paris. He was very much of a libertine, and um, and he was 59 years old at the time, and he said it has come too late. You know, he 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 only reigned nine years, and. I, Charles keeps himself very fit, but he's seventy four and um he will not have a long reign fortunately when and his mother der- deserves some credit for letting him do this um from a very early age, she and Prince Philip gave him all kinds of latitude to pursue his passions to um, to make the role of Prince of Wales into something that was meaningful. And when I wrote a book about him, I was astonished by the number of initiatives and enterprises and charities that he founded um, that really made a difference to people all across, you know, glass lines, cultural lines, ethnic lines. And so he was able to get that all in a way out of his system. And now I think he's in a very good position um, to be you know, a very wise. Well, he's been an Arab
0: parent for a long time.
1: He has. He has. Uh, And he may not not be as beloved as his mother, but I think people will admire him.
0: I don't think it's possible. I mean, that's, you know, it's like following Mickey Mantle into center field. Uh, (laughs) I'll take
1: your word for that. Yeah,
0: it's a tough (laughs) tough role to play. And it's very difficult to get used to calling him King Charles III. I mean, he will always be Prince Charles.
1: I know it you know, is hard. It's hard for me to get adjusted to.
0: We just have about a minute or two left, Sally. Uh, as as a final thought, what what do you hope people get out of this book? What what will they learn from this book, and uh, and how will it change their perception of the monarchy, or how do you hope it will change their perception?
1: Well, I think they will see um, they will see two individuals who really represented the monarchy at its best and at the same time, Britain at its best. And I think a lot of people really don't know a lot about them and tend to underestimate both of them, Um, you know, partly because of the way they've been portrayed in in screen, although I think in the King's speech they were portrayed pretty well, Mm -hmm. but I I really wanna open people, I wanna shine a light and open people's eyes into what these two people contributed um, to Britain and to the world.
0: Sally, thank you again for the book. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.